The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I think it's safe to say that most of us wish we were more productive at work. We're always seeking that one quick fix to increase our output and reduce distractions. But does that really exist? This week on Game Plan, we're talking about productivity. Hi, I'm Rebecca Greenfield. And I'm Sam Grobart. Sam, do you feel productive? Never. No. I terribly. know, but we must be because we get things done. Oh, totally get things done. But the efficiency rate is just terrible. Right. It feels like a struggle. Because it is. Yeah. You know, you and I both do a fair bit of writing. And honestly, it can come down to like, I will write a sentence and then <laughs> I will not write sentences for 10 minutes. Yeah. Which, or yeah. 20. Yeah. Which we talked about in the the New Year's resolution episode, how both of my resolutions were productivity focused because it's become such an issue for me. That's right. One of my two were productivity focused. The other was fat focused, yeah. but that's for another episode. Different, different issue. Yeah. So yeah, if you Google productivity hacks, there are lots of bad suggestions. There's out there. a lot <laughs> of what we might call horse hockey out yes, there. Sam's favorite term. A little malarkey, maybe. Yeah. It's like drink water. I swear. One of them was drink water. Drink water. Breathe Get oxygen. Get enough sleep. Yeah. It's nothing good. Concentrate. Yeah. You know, it's just honestly. And there are thousands of these articles. And by the way, there will be thousands more. This is a continual cottage industry of crap. Yeah. There's also a genre of these about how often you're supposed to take breaks. And there was some research that came out a couple years ago that got a lot of press because it said the exact amount of time that you're supposed to work in the ratio that you're supposed to take a break is 52 minutes of working and a 17 minute break. See, now that lies contrary to what I've found online, which is the Pomodoro method, Mm. the tomato method, apparently. (laughs) Sounds real. It's delicious. And it is 25 minutes of work, five minute breaks. Okay, so the ratio is similar-ish. I don't know, math. Uh, no, actually, no. you wind up with a, a better break ratio with, with, mine. with your 52-17. So the general thinking is that breaks are good. Sure. But then also the problem is that I take too many breaks. Right. So we need a timer for the 52-17 ratio. That just sounds hard. Yeah, it seems like also if you're in the middle of something at 52, you're not going to stop. Exactly. We don't work in isolation, at least not usually. No. And then also on top of that, like bigger picture, there's a lot of research about how vacation kind of breaks are good, too, which I can definitely get behind. But who's going to argue with that? Your boss. Oh, (laughs) fair point. Fair point, Becca. So, yeah, it just seems like there's obviously no quick fix to being more productive. It's the human condition. And we always are reaching for a slightly better version of ourselves. And we probably never get there. But today... Is it going to happen today? We're going to do it today. We're talking to somebody who has studied in an academically rigorous way various ways that you can really achieve your goals. That's right. And he's looked at it not only in the conscious mind, 
but also in the subconscious mind. We have here with us Gary Latham. He is a professor of organizational effectiveness at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much for coming on and talking to us. My pleasure. So we're talking about getting things done. And you've done some research on how to achieve goals consciously. Can you talk about that? Well, I started working uh, in this area way back in the late 1960s, early 1970s, working with logging crews. And in many ways, they were similar to the people you saw in the movie Deliverance with Burt Reynolds. These oh, wow. were high, highly uneducated people who might come to work two days one week, zero days the next week. And I found early on that if you gave these people specific, high but attainable goals to pursue in terms of number of trees to cut down, from day one, right through the remainder of the work week, their productivity soared, their job attendance soared, and what was perceived by them as backbreaking, meaningless work suddenly became highly meaningful and almost like a game, whether it's bowling or golf, keeping score as to how many trees they were cutting down. It induced competitiveness and a sense of pride in what they were doing. And so I'm sorry to interrupt you, Gary. I'm just curious. So are you suggesting that it is in the specificity of the goal that promotes that kind of effort? You can't overstate the importance of that word specificity as opposed to general. So a general goal might be look me in the eye and tell me you're going to do your best. Or a general goal might be uh, before summer, I'm going to lose weight. All of those types of goals uh, we found have all but a meaningless effect on your performance. The goal has to be specific. Have you been able to replicate this outside of logging since uh, most of our listeners, I think, aren't loggers? But we're working to grow that audience, actually, so it's really great that you're here. So does that, does that work in an office setting? Yes, absolutely. So by the mid-70s, we were working in office settings, and perhaps our most uh, impressive finding was with uh, people with masters and PhDs in engineering and the sciences. And we found, once again, those who were assigned specific high goals did better than those who just had general goals. And those who participated in the goal-setting process with their boss set even higher goals than those that were assigned unilaterally, and they had the highest performance of all. And that was extremely impressive. And as of 2017, we have found that goal setting is extremely effective on close to 100 different tasks. So it's by no means restricted to logging. That sounds like a lot of work that you were doing, as, as Becca described, sort of in the conscious realm. Uh, but you've actually moved on. Is that correct? You've now looked at ways in which the subconscious can help us achieve goals. Yeah, yes, I have. And I should preface by saying that I did so very reluctantly. Uh, there was a number of studies coming out of social psychology showing that 
if you left books on a table and in one group the books had to do with dieting and in the other group uh, the books on a table had to do with, um, let's say, gardening or what have you, and then someone comes in later and says, hi, you must be getting hungry. Would you like an apple or a chocolate? And those who saw the books on the table uh, that had to do with dieting, unbelievable to me, uh, chose the apple over the chocolate. Now, I've never done that in my entire life. I would always choose a chocolate. And when you ask people afterwards, did you notice uh, the magazines on the table? They would say no. And for those, the few who said, yes, I did notice the books on the table. And you said, what were the books about? They didn't have a clue. And so the social psychologists were saying, this is how you can prime a goal in someone's subconscious to be interested in physical fitness and dieting, what have you. Now, I and my co-researcher, Ed Locke, have been working on consciously set goals since the 60s. And we just didn't believe any of this that we considered to be utter nonsense. (laughs) So we did, uh, first he did a laboratory experiment, and much to his shock and mine, he replicated the results of the social psychologist. So my reaction with my doctor, she was then my doctoral student, she's now a, a psychologist, Amanda Shantz, I said to her, you know, we need to do a, an experiment in an organizational setting, and this is a win-win. If, um, if it doesn't come out, we can keep this nonsense from entering into our field, which is organizational psychology. If it does work, uh, you'll get your first publication. But if it works, I'm going to eat the paper that you print this <laughs> on because it's not going to work. And so much to my chagrin, this uh, was published in 2009, uh, much to my chagrin, I, I will confess I didn't actually eat the paper. She didn't hold but you to I, that? Wow. I, I, <laughs> well, there was a I diet book in the room, and you didn't yeah, want it. there wasn't, and I didn't like it with salt or sugar, so <laughs> what the heck. But here's what we found. We had call center employees, and we didn't measure performance, so we couldn't have biased the results in one way or the other. A computer assesses how many donors, uh, call center employees, can uh, get to contribute money, and the amount of dollars actually raised. And we then randomly assigned employees to one condition versus another. In our experimental condition, they saw a backdrop. Now, a backdrop simply means you write the words, the instructions for soliciting donations over a picture of a racer breaking the finish line, winning the race. The control people, they have the exact same instructions for soliciting money from donors, and the instructions weren't made up by Amanda Shantz or me. They're made up by management. So we're simply watching to see if there's any difference between this racer who allegedly, we didn't believe this, but allegedly, 
is priming a high need for achievement. And lo and behold, the racer, in fact, primed the need for achievement and resulted in way more money being raised than in the case where they didn't see the backdrop of the racer. Now, here's the hoot. When you asked employees when this was all over, by the way, did you notice the racer? They said no. Wow. They said, how can you not see the racer? It's right there. It's just a print over. They said we were too busy making phone calls to notice. And then when we told them the effect that it had on their behavior, they laughed uproariously. They laughed. I didn't, but they laughed. So then I told Amanda she was too young to ruin her reputation with these kinds of results, and I was too old. We would have to replicate it. So the first experiment that I just told you about was done at the call center at the University of Toronto calling alumni. She then replicated the results at McMaster University in Ontario and McGill University in Montreal. And we got the exact same results. So now I knew we were on to something. Yeah, it's like those posters in high school that we had to sit near were actually doing something for us. Teamwork. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering Yeah. I'm wondering if um so you've you've had these studies and they do seem unbelievable. Have offices integrated any of your findings at all? Well, I think in lots of cases, you know, the public is ahead of science. And way back in the 80s, I became department chair. And my uh, co-author of some 40 years, Ed Locke, to congratulate me, sent me these posters around high achievement. You know, the person's jumping over a high bar and the catch underneath is something as trite as, if first you don't succeed, try again. So when I first went to publish the re- these results in 2008, the edit, one of the comments the um, journal editor had was, uh, do you have posters like these on your office? And I suddenly looked up at, on my walls and thought, oh, my Lord, I do have these posters <laughs> on my walls, and I haven't paid any attention to them in some 20, 25 years. So have they had an effect on my behavior? I suspect they must have. I also understand when we we had been talking before that you're now working on research about um, words and how words can affect the subconscious and emails. Can you talk about that research a little bit? Well, I've done uh, done studies on that. Uh, It's a huge national retail store. I don't think I've got permission to say who they are. But the CEO sends out a weekly email to all employees. And it's kind of a rah-rah speech to get them motivated as of Monday for the rest of the work week. We convinced him to let us insert some achievement-related words in his email. But we only did it for half his employees. And again, there's randomly assignments as to who is going to get the achievement message versus those who aren't. Now, the only difference between the two email messages 
is that those in the experimental group had 12 achievement-related words. Oh, I forgot to say, in all these experiments, we really probe people after the fact as to whether they perceived, caught on, to figure out what we were trying to test. Uh, in this case, could see the difference in the message that the CEO sent this week versus previous weeks. We've done everything possible to debunk uh, awareness versus unawareness. Because remember, I'm a cognitive thinking psychologist. I'm not into this subconscious stuff. So I'm consciously trying to trip up my own results. And we find again and again and again, with no exception, people are unaware of what's being attempted. Now, end of the work week. The store's computer, not us researchers, who assess the results. And the computer showed that those 12 achievement-related words embedded in the CEO's message sent out by email resulted in significantly higher sales than was the case of their fellow employees who didn't read those 12 words. I find this whole thing unbelievable. If this were reversed and you were explaining all of this to me and I was listening, I wouldn't believe a word of what you're saying. <laughs> the only reason why I believe this is because I collected the data and I don't want to believe it, but it's true. I'm wondering, you've mentioned this a little bit, but if the employees catch on to it, does that make them aware in such a way that they won't be as productive? Yes. Mm. People don't like to be manipulated. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and there have been some experiments, not done by me, but in the scientific literature, showing that if people catch on, then they uh, act the opposite. I, I could see myself doing that. Well, yeah. sure. You know, in a romantic relationship, if you know that she, he is just buttering you up, Generally, it doesn't have a positive effect. No. Well, some of us like that, but. <laughs> <laughs> I Man, I was planning on putting all of these motivational images on my desk, but now they're not going to work if out. I know. Right. Yeah. Well, so you wouldn't, you know, it's not manipulation by others. I think I would be, and, and I'll tell you, I have done this consciously. I suddenly have looked at the uh, oil paintings on our walls in our home. And I'm certainly aware my kids are, are now growing, but for nieces and nephews, I'm certainly aware of the uh, photos and stuff they put up on their bedroom walls. And um, I would certainly be aware of the kinds of things that you're reading, downers versus uppers. I have more respect now for uh, books written by Dale Carnegie and others saying uh, that I think probably do, in fact, have a very positive effect on your outlook and as a result, your behavior. Just another reason for me to stay away from all the news on Twitter. Exactly. Bringing me down. Right. You well, don't want that info. Absolutely. Absolutely. This was really, really interesting. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Hopefully we will all be more productive because of it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. So I feel like I owe the makers of all those successories posters <laughs> yeah. of, you know, 
parachuters making a circle and horses jumping over barriers a big apology. And I think, and also you're welcome, because we're obviously going to increase their sales greatly. That's right. So if, you know, send a little love this way, all right? Maybe a sponsorship or something? (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we all scoff at those silly posters that are up in office buildings, including our own. And yet we're the ones that are idiots. They work. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so inclined to believe Gary because he was so incredulous himself. Right. He was like, don't believe me, but, but it's true. Also, I've tested it a lot. Yeah. No, no. And he's certainly been doing this for quite a while. And, you know, he's invested a lot of time in it. So there is actually one quick trick yeah. to improve your work productivity. Look at marathoners crossing a finish line. Yeah. But another thing that we didn't really get to is I think part of this problem of obsession with productivity is that we hold ourselves to this. I hold myself to a very high standard and then beat myself up when I'm I'm not as productive as I want to be. And that seems to make me less productive even. I don't even hold myself to a high standard yet still beat myself up. So that's another issue altogether. But yes, I think it's true that there is an unattainable goal here. Yeah. There's no such thing as like perfect productivity. No. And all these these bloggers and life hackers are feeding into our anxieties and making them worse. That's right. There's someone else out there more productive than you. Right. And if you don't up your game, you're going to get passed by. Mm-hmm. So but yeah. we're all distractible, self-centered morons. <laughs> so buy some posters. Yeah. And, and, be, and maybe be kind to yourself. Give yourself a little hug. And now it's time for Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes. All right, Sam, what is your not quite fully formed idea for this week? This one actually came to me last week, and I took my six-year-old son to the movies, and it was one of those kids' movies where I knew I was not going to be interested. Some kids' movies I might be, but this was not going to be one of them. And I wanted to just kind of maybe use my phone. Not audibly, just use my phone to read things and you know, text people or whatever. And I know that can be wildly annoying in a theater full of adults watching an adult movie. I would never do it then. But I do think this rule needs a slight codicil that makes it okay to do this in children's movies. Because when you're a parent, it's just sometimes a lot to ask to watch like two hours of a weirdo animated movie (laughs) that makes no sense. And just if you can just sit there and you know, turn your screen down, of course, silence your phone always. But when it comes to kids movies, I say text away. When you told me this, I was a little appalled at first, but then I remembered what it's like to be in a movie theater with kids and they're really loud and disruptive anyway. Yeah, this is not some temple of, you know, film appreciation, right? They're all talking. They're all dropping their popcorn anyway. Yeah. And laughing at jokes that are not funny to adults. Not at all. So, so, yeah, yeah I think it's movies. okay. I will never reprimand anybody using their phone in a kid's movie. You do it in an adult movie, though. Yeah, get out. I'm going to get all nosy Parker about it. Yeah. All right, I, I endorse. And you, Becca, tell me, so, what is sort of on your mind this week? I got, this is what I'm going to call it, New Year, New Inbox. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, stay with me. So, it's the new year, and you decide you want to clean out your life, and that includes your inbox. I say you make a conscious effort to every time you get an annoying email that you're on an email list for, you go down and unsubscribe. I'm looking at you, West Elm. Yeah. Oh, my God. West Elm. 
Everlane emails. Yeah. I get Bed Bath and Beyond. I Yo, get Fairmont Hotel chain. Yeah, I'm not going to you that often. Oh, JetBlue. Settle down. Yeah, anything you've ever bought anything for, they somehow trick you into signing up for multiple email lists. And yes. if you just methodically, when every time you get the email, just open it up, unsubscribe. It takes a little bit of work, but. I think it's a good practice. I think it really makes a difference. You know, people used to have that conspiracy theory that unsubscribing didn't work. It just confirmed that you were a person. Oh, my God. Don't tell me that. See? No, See? no. I've been getting fewer emails. Okay. Yeah. No, no. Don't listen to Sam. Listen no, to me. I'm just a crazy person. Don't mind me. All right. And that has been Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes. Thank you for listening to another episode of Game Plan. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at RZ Greenfield. And I am at Sam Grobart. And if you have your own half-baked takes, feel free to tweet them at us or at Game Plan. And if you like this show, please head on over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate and review and subscribe. We read them and it means a lot to us. Game Plan is produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Henriksen. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Alec McCabe. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. And maybe like productivity is a state of mind. (laughs) Productivity is is a social construct. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.